Good morning. I'm Jacob Alloy, filling in for Angela Davis. As an arts reporter with NPR News, I get excited to show how expansive art can be. It can be paintings and sculptures in a museum. It can be food, community spaces, and so much more. Today, I'm taking you into this wide-ranging community. I visited the studios of local leaders who are giving a voice to underrepresented communities, and I'm excited to introduce you to them today. Bayou Bay and Leslie Barlow are from Creatives After Curfew, a group of artists that started painting murals during the pandemic and after the murder of George Floyd. We'll meet Alec Fisher, a local 29-year-old who has won four Emmys for his documentary film work. His latest project is called COVID Confessions, a video series that focuses on how the pandemic affected workers in the Midwest. I'll also take you into the Minneapolis Institute of Art, where we'll meet Valeria Piccoli, the first ever curator of Latin American art and the chair of the Arts of the Americas. First, I want to introduce you to Bayou Bay. They're an installation artist and muralist. I met them at Affirmation Space, their installation at the Northrop King Building in Northeast Minneapolis. And there's a lot about their space that's enticing, from the great smell, the relaxing low lights, and many cozy places to sit. And the whole vibe of Affirmation Space is to gather people in good ways and to be a place where we can affirm ourselves, community can do community affirmations. So the whole purpose is um, to to welcome people. And so all of the hammock chairs, all of the different benches, some of the benches we built ourselves, the purpose behind these is so that you know you're supposed to come in and relax and just be. You're supposed to feel like this is your space. And that's why there's incense burning that smells so good so that even before you see the space, you smell the space and you want to come in. And the purpose of the light portal that we're standing with right now is to really inspire a moment of awe and interest so that if you are weary of coming in the space, you see it and you're like, ooh, I think I need to go in there. Right, it definitely draws you in. I mean, we're standing in this giant circle sort of situation and it's surrounded by LED lights and it really just wants, it kind of beckons you in. And uh, I'm wondering, you know, what you're envisioning of this is for the space other than something that draws people and tells them they should come in and, and engage with it. Yeah, so this piece is called the Light Portal, and it's also called the Ancestral Dial. Me and my homie Saba started um, working with ideas of how do you make the number of ancestry that you have visible and, and tangible. So this circle is actually a uh, decahexagon, 16 sides, and that represents four generations back of great-grandparents. And so the idea of the light portal is for ancestors to be able to come through the space, come through the portal, and weave us together in good ways. And it's like communal ancestors too, collective ancestors. So maybe it's not the blood lineage ancestors, but maybe you're a writer or maybe you're, maybe you do music and it's the musical ancestors, the writing ancestors that are supporting you. I love that idea of like where you came from and, and how that, that not only your lineage or your heritage, but the communities you've surrounded yourself in uh, support you in your life and you can feel like you're in conversation with them in this space. I'm, I'm curious too, do you mind if we walk over towards where the uh, cafe is being built? You mentioned this earlier, we we're hearing some of the, the people working on this. Can you tell me a little bit about why you've decided to add a cafe aspect into this? Yeah, so the cafe is actually a public functionary cafe. So public functionary has the main gallery where a lot of the art and events happen. And then this 
cafe will be connected to it so that you can have the full experience you have uh food and drink which is necessary to really gather people like the more uh capacity people have to be in a space and not have to leave the space to get something like some water or something tasty to eat or drink the more capacity they have to be in the space and relax and just be Bayou's affirmation space is installed in Public Functionary, a community space that props up emerging artists of color. Leslie Barlow leads Public Functionary. In 2019, we started um, an emerging artist studio program in the Northrop King Building, and I was really a part of leading, creating spaces that were uh, low cost for emerging artists of color in this building. That was really kind of the first step into public functionary taking up space in the Northrop King building. Um, at the time, public functionary was looking for a new home. And so it started as an emerging artist studio program, and then it grew from there. So we were in one studio, then we kind of grew into two studios, and then now we're in five studios and uh, now have a resurgence or a recreation of the gallery space, the exhibition space, which was always what public functionary um, was. It was a hub for folks to connect, right? And so we wanted to make sure that there was an exhibition space again, and that is now also in the Northrop King building. So affirmation space is inside that exhibition space, and uh, we're hoping that, yeah, all types of kinds of um, pop-ups and collaborations and events and experiences happen in this space. I definitely see Public Functionary as an experimental space, um, definitely forward-thinking. And it's also a space where, you know, a lot of artists, they they find it, it's like home, you know? Like, it's a space that feels very, there's an authentic invitation, right, for folks to connect um, and to show their work in this space. And especially for the kinds of artists that we work with, I would even speak for myself, right? There's not a lot of spaces where you feel seen and supported like you do at Public Functionary, and that's really, really important to us. You know, one of the things that you both touched on earlier when we were talking about uh, affirmation space and also public functionary is so much emphasis on community and building community. And so I'm, I'm curious what role community plays in in all of it. I feel like community is the space where, for me, as someone that's a little bit introverted, um, it gave me a space where I could feel safe to not only experience blackness outside of my home, but at a time in the last 10 years where there's been so much violence and harm done to black folks, I feel like art and community gave me multiple spaces where I can express myself, feel what liberation feels like inside of my body, and then create art that is not only healing for myself, but also healing for others. And so I feel like the more community spaces that we have, um, that allow us to express ourselves freely in liberatory fashions, then the more spaces we have to combat all of the trauma that uh, our systems inflict on us on a daily basis. I can't follow that. <laughs> also, like, so much of that resonates. Also, you are not an introvert. What? <laughs> You literally lead so many community spaces. <laughs> you are so funny. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm also really shy. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, uh, no. How do I follow that? Well, everything Bayou just said really resonates with me. Community is everything. I find that the stronger your community is as an artist, the more likely you're going to stay committed to your practice. It's so important to me as an artist to have a community that I can be vulnerable with, that I can trust, and that, you know, I feel supported by. And that's really been my goal is to cultivate spaces that feel like that for myself and for others. As a person who paints other people, um, relationships are really important. Whether that is you're, you're building that relationship in a day <laughs> through you know getting to know that person with the painting or, um, or through the process of painting. Or there are multiple conversations that lead to creating a work of art together. Um, or it's, you know whether I'm painting my grandma, right? Like, and deepening the relationship through making many paintings of her, both of my grandmothers, which I have, you know, like those community relationships, family relationships, friendships are really important to me. Um, But I would also say, you know, thinking about like mural work, for example, which I know we'll be talking about um, with Creators After Curfew. There's so many layers of community embedded in that work, whether it's bringing ideas together from multiple folks in community, collaborating with other artists, Mm. right, to create something that is, that feels representative of our ideas or of community. Like there's just so, so many things you can learn through these, these kinds of projects and so many ways you can build with each other and create space that allows folks to really share. It's a reciprocal relationship with community where, I was healed by artists and community creating spaces that allowed me to open up, be vulnerable, and share private moments that I was having at home with my own thoughts to share them out loud and encourage me to be an artist. Uh, especially when you start now, you can have so many doubts about if you're supposed to be an artist or what you can and cannot do. And Affirmation Space grew out of all of those experiences where I went to a community event And there was a moment out in the open where I had an opportunity to be my true self, to hear my true voice, but also to see other artists, to see other people in community be their true open selves. And so that's that's why I try to make a space that feels like home. You walk in and you feel nurtured and welcome. You smell something that makes your shoulders drop, makes your spirit ease and allows you to be a, a true form of yourself. Leslie Barlow is also an oil painter who makes portraits. She and Bayou Bay are part of the collective Creatives After Curfew. The group has painted murals around the cities that you may have seen, including the painted target on Lake Street, the rest in power portraits on the North Star Building, and the Welcome to Northeast Arts District mural on the side of the East Side Food Co-op. Creatives After Curfew founded after the murder of George Floyd. I asked them why his killing galvanized the group. I feel like it wasn't a moment where we said, let's create a collective. It was a moment where we were um, in trauma. We were traumatized. Uh, Leslie, at the time, you lived two blocks away Mm -hmm. from 38th and Chicago. I lived three blocks away from 38th and Chicago. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was more about... I don't want to be in my house alone Mm -hmm. in this pandemic, in this lockdown situation. I want to go speak truth to power. And now all of a sudden 
the city is boarding itself up and there are all these spaces where we can go speak the truth about police brutality. The conversation was quickly becoming about abolishing the police. That conversation had already been started by so many organizers and activists in the community, but now people were willing to hear it. And I think the pandemic created this environment and the lockdown um, created this environment where you actually could sit down and really watch this video of what Derek Chauvin was doing to George Floyd. You could watch this police murder and not just go on to the next slide on your Instagram or not just go on to the next thing. All of us were in our homes all around the world watching this happen. And so I believe that is why the world reacted in the way that it did. You just brought me all the way back (laughs) with all of that. And it still is like, sometimes it's hard to talk about how we did come together because yes, it was very obviously very traumatic. And when we sat together in this park and it was artists really from that area, right? That was like our neighborhood. Um, there were helicopters, you know, like flying or circling us. <laughs> and I just remember the sound. We couldn't even hear each other talk because the helicopters were so loud. Um, and that was the first time we got together. And Bayou is right. There was a nexus of things that made that possible. Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, George Floyd's murder, the very public nature of that, the isolation we were all feeling mm-hmm. up until that moment, and also that we didn't have any work. <laughs> the pandemic had removed a lot of right. things from our a lot of artists were feeling that impact. Right. Installments, uh, engagements, right. things like that. So we had some space to activate, mm. seriously activate. Mm. And we were activated. We definitely wanted to take up space and make sure that we were marking this moment very clearly, um, but also creating opportunities for black folks especially to grieve and process together what was happening because we were up until that moment and even in the first days um, feeling very isolated and very, I mean, it was just very heavy. So the the police brutality didn't stop Hmm. with George Floyd. Um, There was Dalau Ill and Winston Smith and Dante Wright. And as a mural collective, there was this moment, or I'll speak for myself as an individual, there was this moment where I was like, I do not want to keep painting these murals. Do I want to paint murals in black community about beautiful black things? Do I want to be with BIPOC artists? Do I want to have these big community murals? Yeah, but not always in response to this level of police brutality. When like when the way the community came around the Dante Wright mural, Mm -hmm. that was like collective trauma Mm -hmm. and a point where we could all come together and see each other and support each other. Like there are people driving by as we're doing the mural because the mural was kitty corner from the Dante from Dante's funeral. So there are people driving by yelling 
we love you, thank you. Mm-hmm. Like cars full of black women out the window saying thank you. And that's important. But how do we also generate that not based on police brutality? Right. And that's why I think these spaces are important. Mm-hmm. Because if I can go over the list of events that have happened at public functionary or that have happened at affirmation space or other spaces in the Twin Cities that are similar, then you'll see the same ways in which that that car full of black women yelling I love you in mourning and in healing happen on a day-to-day basis. Bayou Bay's affirmation space at Public Functionary officially opens to the public on February 4th. Leslie Barlow, who runs Public Functionary, also appeared in my next guest's latest project called COVID Confessions. The project shares intimate stories from hundreds of workers across 40 industries who were impacted by the pandemic. All of them are either from Minnesota or have a personal connection to the state. Alec Fisher is the 29-year-old documentary filmmaker behind COVID Confessions. You can see some of the videos right now on YouTube by going to Fisher Media. That's F-I-S-C-H-R Media. Alec won four Upper Midwest Emmy Awards for the series. Let's take a listen. I've gotten so many more emails than I've ever gotten from students that I don't know that are emailing me with these mental health problems that are so heavy. Hobbies that I used to enjoy, things that I feel like I can be productive with, I lose interest in immediately. I was so emotionally drained that I just kind of Numb is the best, the best way that I can think about it. A lot of people in my world are really struggling right now. Um, We're scrambling to figure it out. What it's like when your regulars pass away, that's something that I have experienced as a shop owner that I just did not ever imagine. It blows my mind to go into work every single day now and see numerous people with COVID. In the beginning, I would maybe see a patient here and there that had it or had symptoms, and now it's every single day, so. That is part of a documentary series called COVID Confessions. You can catch more of these videos on YouTube and expect more videos to be released over the next year. I recently sat down with Alec Fisher in his edit suite to ask him how he got into documentary filmmaking. In high school, I made a documentary that was highlighting uh, student suicide and and teen bullying in the Minnesota public school system. Um, That was something that was born out of advocacy I was doing in my community. I really saw that adults weren't talking about it in the way that students were. And so I traveled around the state, filmed stories from students, compiled them into a short film. And when I released it, uh, it was a 45-minute short doc. And I realized, whoa. This is a medium that can change hearts, it can change perspectives, it can, it can change people's minds. Um, and I really fell in love with the craft at that moment. It was my senior year in high school, and uh, you know, now, I'm, now I'm here 10 years later. Starting out in film, filmmaking and documentary making at a young age, I'm curious if there was ever pushback from, from folks who were older than you or, or peers in that industry that saw the work that you were doing and said, you know, I, it's great that you're making these films, but... At such a young age, I don't know if you have the quote-unquote knowledge to really be doing this kind of work. And so I'm curious, was that something that you ran into in your, in your beginning of your career? 
Yeah, a lot actually. <laughs> uh, people saw that I had the like raw skill, and they they saw that the stories were there. Um, but there was a lot of feedback and criticism on lighting and sound design, and um, you know, overall, where could I take this? And I actually experienced quite a lot of production companies and, and larger, uh, both national and regional um, companies trying to come in and basically take what I had done use it for themselves and sort of uh, use my naiveness towards the industry as an 18-year-old uh, to their advantage. And, and I had multiple companies at the time who literally wanted my contact list for the film so they could go reshoot everything. <laughs> and, and that was sort of a nice wake up to the industry in terms of who I didn't want to work with and, and kind of learning on the go, you know, how do I protect the stories that I'm trying to tell? How do I make them authentic? And, and um you know, who do I want to work with as collaborators in the future? I know that you wanted to actually go into politics at first before you made the transition into doing journalism and doing documentary films. And so why did, why did you choose to go down that path instead? That's a great question. I spent a lot of time in middle school and high school doing advocacy work for the Safe and Supportive Schools Act that was trying to be passed at the time. And, you know, even in college, I, I did some lobbying work. I worked with a friend to draft legislation to ban conversion therapy and was doing a lot of meetings with elected officials and and realized that what I was trying to do was change people's perspectives and, and pass things that were going to, you know, protect people in our communities. And I, I realized I was angry all the time. Mm. <laughs> I was just so frustrated. Mm -hmm. I would come home every day and just be like, I need to scream because I'm so it's it's such a game to some of these people. And it was so frustrating to me. And uh, I think doing more of the film work and leaning into that, I, I really saw that I could change perspectives and, and be a catalyst for social change in ways that I could not do writing legislation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and for me, I had, you know, some talent in that area. I had some passion there and it was this flip of a switch, almost realizing I can do more impact work through the medium of film and documentary than I can do with politics right now. And I'm also a lot less angry doing it. <laughs> I just feel a lot better. I feel a lot happier. Um, and I can have really in incredible conversations with people that are inspiring to me and empowering to the community I work with and communities I reside in. And so that was a flip for me is, is going from politics to film was, um, you know, realizing the impact could be there in a different way that I hadn't realized originally. You know, uh, your, your work most recently with COVID confessions, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But it it was so centered on the experiences of people in the Midwest, in one way or another, had a connection to Minnesota or the Midwest. And so I'm curious, why are you wanting to tell stories about the Midwest? What was the appeal to that? Is it sort of that there is interest from the from the coasts, or is there something else that has prompted you to want to continue to tell Midwestern stories? Yeah, for me, it's something that's been on my heart for a couple of years now. And, and I've always felt that there are so many incredible things happening in both Minnesota and just the Midwest in general. Um, and I think I realized when I first started my company four years ago that there was this huge gap in productions that were focusing on local stories, but bringing them to a national level. And so, you know, I have, I have seen interest in covering Midwestern stories from folks who are not in the Midwest. Well, let's talk about your most recent project, COVID Confessions. Uh, 
it was nominated for outstanding journalism and video in video or uh, multimedia for a glad media award uh it was also the uh winner for visual storytelling in a small newsroom for the uh, EWA award in education reporting uh you uh also have been in the last year or two been nominated for eight upper midwest emmy awards and you won four out of the eight that you were nominated for with as much recognition as as covid confessions has been getting how did it come about how did you start the uh the process in creating the series you know i had conversations with peers with friends who were in different industries and and realized that no one had been doing sit-down interviews on camera with nurses and teachers. There had been a lot of, you know, written articles. There had been a lot of audio-type podcast work. There had also been a few, you know, we're going to be in the hospital with people. But I hadn't seen anything where there was a sit-down produced reflection for folks. So I so I brought eight people together individually, filmed them one at a time, and, you know, thought I would just make a short film that highlighted nurse and teacher stories. Mm-hmm. And very quickly after had people saying, have you talked to this person? Have you talked to this industry? And realized that there was so much more I could do if I, if I wanted to. Um, and so that turned into a week of filming turned into a month of filming. After that month, I, <laughs> I sort of had a decision where I could stop and edit for two months and just figure out what that looked like. Um, I think I had told like 15 stories at that point, but I made the decision to challenge myself to see how many stories could I tell in a whole year and, and made a promise to myself that I'm going to, you know, even if it's part-time, I'm just going to work on this for 12 months, just see what I can do. And 12 months passed and I, I had filmed more than 300 people across 40 industries and the scale of it just went way more than I, than I had expected. With so many interviews and so many stories that you told, I'm curious, which, which stories in the process of, of doing the series had the most impact on you and, and why they spoke to you specifically? It is interesting, that question, because I think it's a little bit, you know, artists talk about, you know, you can't choose your favorite piece, you can't choose your favorite child, that that whole argument. But, uh, you know, I think there were a couple episodes that stood out. One of them was I talked to elementary school kiddos. So I interviewed 14 kiddos uh, from kindergarten to fifth grade. And those stories really stuck with me because I I wasn't aware of how much these little kids had absorbed and I also think it was powerful because they all came in with their guardians or their parent figures. And I, I think their parents were not quite aware of how much they had absorbed. And so it was actually a very emotional, we filmed that over a process of two or three weeks. Um, and it was a very emotional experience, both for myself, the kids and the parents, because I think everyone was sort of realizing, whoa, they have... <laughs> they have been eyes open for the last year and we just didn't realize what they've, what they've picked up on and then also seeing just the optimism from them. So that's, that's one that sticks out, but there were, there were many. Um, I think another one that really stuck out for me is I, I interviewed um, adult entertainers across a couple different industries within the adult entertainment industry and, or a couple different facets there. And building that trust took about four to five months mm-hmm. um, before anyone would come in and speak. And I think, that process for me as a storyteller was important because I was hearing how a lot of media that people had talked to had misconstrued their story or, or had focused on maybe the, the edgier bits of what they had said. And so that also sort of reaffirmed this, this commitment I have to, to telling the authentic whole story. And, and those episodes both have not come out yet. They will ideally this year. That's the plan. Um, but I'm really excited for audiences to, to hear those perspectives and, and, 
you know, be able to really learn from, from these incredible people. You know, a lot of the episodes are incredibly heavy and have a lot of really heavy subject material in them. And so often as journalists and as documentarians, you aren't asked how it affected you to, to, to take on all of that. And so I'm curious both what was the impact of telling these stories on you? And then also what was your personal impact from the pandemic? What is, what are you doing? Are you still processing all of that? Yeah. I mean, as a joke, I think I disassociated a little bit, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but also, you know, for me, I think it also reaffirmed my humanity in ways I needed. I think there was so much trauma that was happening uh, throughout 2020 and 2021 that for me to be able to sit with people and help them express sometimes the darkest parts of anything they'd ever experienced before. Mm. Um, some people lost literally everything, family, jobs, you know, apartments. Um, but also to be in that space and to be able to have the gift of, of hearing those stories, I think really centered me as a storyteller and, and really affirmed, like I'm, I'm doing the right thing right now. Uh, and storytelling is what I love. And I, I was really able to fall in love with the craft in a new way um, that I think really helped me get through <laughs> a lot of, a lot of what that year entailed. Mm. Um, right. The, the, the work was able to help you in the process. Yes. And I also think, you know, a lot of my corporate client contracts had been canceled and so as those started to trickle back in, it was also just this, this project that I could fully throw myself into. Mm. And, and, you know, it was a self-financed project. I, I was spending upwards of 80 to 100 hours a week on it. And it was really something that I could fully get engaged with and, and not really question, what am I doing? Like, wh where's my time this week going to go? Uh, you know, which countered the first two or three months of just playing Animal Crossing in my apartment. <laughs> Speaking of which, we are actually taping this in your uh, your your studio, your workspace, your office, and I'm I'm drawn to look at all of these wonderful post-its that are on the wall. Uh, there's a bunch of post-its that seem to have uh, different professions and industries written on them, and so I'm assuming this is kind of your timeline for the the work that you've done and are continuing to do on COVID confessions. Yeah, that is the uh, that is the unofficial like master board of of organization there. Um, that was something that started as more brainstorming of what could could I film, and uh, you know the the post its that stayed were the episodes that made it fully to fruition. Um, I wanted to film more than four to five people to make an official episode, and so all of those post its have have more than five folks um, who were interviewed and. Yeah, right now it's <laughs> they're sorted in order of, you know, you've got the seven that have been published and the, you know, 30 plus that <laughs> are on the docket. Uh, the, the goal is to get the majority of those 30 out this year. Um, but yeah, it's, it's exciting to look at how that's shifted from just being an idea to now a production order. I'm curious what's next for you and what do you what do you hope to accomplish moving forward in this year beyond we've already kind of chatted about uh beyond publishing the rest of the series <laughs> <laughs> uh, which honestly will probably be the focus for the next one to two years um i really want to do more queer focused content um i've got several concepts for different things um within the queer community i'm sober i would love to explore sobriety within the queer community and, and what that looks like and there's a, a, a number of other ideas as well and also there are a couple stories i have my eye on that are twin city specific that are minnesota specific that i believe have national 
relevance and interest, potentially global. And I just think folks have not seen the opportunity there in terms of, of reaching those audiences. And that's something I've learned um, for a lot of these streaming services and a lot of the people who are making these decisions on the coasts. You know, they want to know are our audiences across the nation that we're streaming to, our audiences across the globe going to be interested. And and I think there are so many stories here where the answer is yes. So I'm I'm really looking forward to diving into more of the development for those in the future. Alec Fisher is a documentary filmmaker in Minneapolis and owns Fisher Media. He gained international attention for his current project, COVID Confessions. The series won four Upper Midwest Emmy Awards, and it received a National GLAAD Media Award nomination for Outstanding Journalism, Video, or Multimedia, and was named a global finalist for Best Digital Video Storytelling Series. Next, I'm bringing you to the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Valeria Piccoli is the museum's first-ever curator of Latin American art. She's also Mia's chair of the Arts of the Americas. She started her job last month. Even though she's new to this role and new to the Twin Cities, she's no stranger to this work. She worked as a curator for 20 years. Her last position was at Pinacoteca de Sao Paulo, one of the largest art museums in Brazil. We started our conversation in the contemporary art section of the museum. I asked her to show me her favorite piece in the current Latin American collection. This is a piece by Ronnie Quevedo, um, who is an artist born in Guayaquil, Ecuador. And what I find really fascinating about it is that when you look at it on the wall, it's just like something that, I mean, reminds you of some other abstract work you have already seen somewhere. And then it's really fascinating how many layers of meaning this work has. So if you think about it, um, I mean, to begin with, uh, Quevedo always works, uh, always does like abstract work. Uh, And this is because he sees abstraction as something that is shared, right, both by Western culture and by the ancient peoples of the Americas. So he... Uh, his work really draws in this tradition that can be understood by all the cultures in the Americas. Also, uh, if you look at the title, he uses like two works in Quechua, which is the language of the peoples that live in the Andes region, like Peru, Colombia, Bolivia, Ecuador, so an indigenous language. And the words he uses are the words sun and moon, And if you think about sun and moon, it's like darkness and brightness, light and and dark, you know, all the rhythms of of the nature that guides, in a way, the lives and the rituals of indigenous peoples, right? And also, uh, for this, he uses this superimposition of rays, uh, golden rays, right, in, in the work that you see when you get close to it. And, of course, and he uses, like, a metal, uh, to uh, evoke this uh, this golden sunlight, and of course, if you see there's like the gold and the silver, they also evoke natural resources and natural riches of South America that were exploited, and they are responsible in many ways for the wealth of the colonizer nations. Right. So uh, I think that this is very beautiful. It looks like very simple. And when you come close and you begin to unveil these layers of meaning, the work becomes really rich. 
From afar, I didn't see the sun rays in the work, but up close, I could see them, and it shows how sometimes perspective can make all the difference. When I sat down with Valeria Piccoli, I was curious to know her perspective on the term Latin American art. Yeah, it's a very sensitive question, right? Because uh, actually, Latin America is an European construction, so it, it it's it speaks to the colonization process, but. Actually, I think we still lack a proper term to speak about um, the countries that were colonized by Spanish, by Spain, and by Portugal in Central and South. Oh, well, and British and and, and, and French, French and, 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 and Dutch right, and, and Dutch and, and, yeah, yeah exactly uh, in in Central and South America. But uh, and it's tricky because if you speak about Spanish America, you are excluding many things. And usually, even when you speak about Latin America, you uh, people always think of Spanish America. So they don't, don't consider Brazil, for instance, as part of Latin America or the Caribbean countries, which are, uh, which are another mix of different traditions. So uh, it is really tricky, the question. And uh, I don't feel like that this is the right term, but really I think we lack a proper term to define what is Latin American, Latin American. <laughs> Exactly. So I'm curious too then, you know, you, you talk about, you just mentioned all these countries that had so many colonial influences, but also so many influences from uh, indigenous communities. And then in the case of the Caribbean and other places, you have influence from African diaspora and people who are brought here against their will. And so I'm curious about the richness and variety and overarching themes, maybe, in Latin American art. Could you touch upon that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that those overarching themes are really what, what interests me, you know, uh, really to think about how the Americas are this crossroads, this mix of many different cultures, and how we can think about, for instance, the Americas in, in relationship to I mean, to African heritage, because we have like the African, as you said, like people brought here against their will, enslaved people that were brought to many countries in the Americas, not only the Caribbean, <laughs> and uh, that had like a de decisive influence in in uh, in the culture of this these countries, as well as you know, think about the Americas in re relationship to Asia, for instance, you know, mm. because we have since colonial times, like contacts with China, with India, with the Philippines, with, you know... Brazil has a huge uh, Japanese population. Absolutely. The, the biggest, la the largest Japanese population outside of Japan. And uh, so I think that all those aspects are things that we share, you know, in different countries of the America, of, of the Americas. And I think that this is something that will help us look about what we have in common and not stress our differences. So I'm curious, as you mentioned all of these things, uh, what your kind of thinking as you come into a curation job here and as you were already doing a lot of curation work for your entire career, what thought process goes into how do I display the pieces that are inspired by these uh, influences that come from other parts of the world that come in and mix with indigenous art and, and create something, you know, uh, completely new and completely different than than what we might associate with Latin American art. And I say that in heavy air quotes. Okay, so uh, I think that we have to make 
like to establish limits here, boundaries here, right. because we have a, a department of global contemporary art in the museum, right? So this is not my responsibility to curate contemporary art. Although I think, I believe we can do this in conversation with global contemporary art. In the contemporary art scene, there are so many artists that speak to this connection between ancient traditions and contemporary cu culture, as we, we have just seen with Roni Quevedo, those artists that really want to bring memories and to bring surface histories that were kind of uh, marginalized, were remained untold for so many times. So I think that those are the artists that I really want to highlight in this program. I'm curious to how you incorporate uh, decolonized perspective to the work that you're going to be doing here and how you've done it in the past as well, but more specifically what it's going to look like in your role now here as chair um, of the Arts of the Americas and also as the curator of Latin American art. Uh, well, I think that besides um, when I said that I want like to build a collection and a program that can um, can make sense in this place and not be like every other collection of Latin American art in many other U.S. museums. Uh, I say that I want to um, really privilege artists that have like African descent, indigenous artists, insist on women artists, and really uh, talk about under, more underrepresented artists that can really bring to surface these questions of colonization, of the history, and the historical experience of uh, Latin America, right? Um, so I think that this is a way of having like a decolonial or, or post-colonial right. <laughs> uh, approach to, to a, a project, to a program and to, to uh, the collection building. Right, right. As you're coming into the role yeah. as, a, as the first person to hold the curation job uh, for Latin American art specifically, you get to kind of build from the ground up the program that will, that will continue forward, right? You're kind of the first person to really take it all in and say, this is how, I, this is how the direction should go in the future. And now you have the opportunity to, to apply that post-colonial decolonized lens to it all. Yeah, exactly. So um, I'm also curious, you know, we talked about, we talked about contemporary art and, 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 and art that's influenced by, you know, African diaspora and other cultures that have come in and mixed with, with indigenous art. I'm curious, though, about your plans to display indigenous art to the Americas. I know that there's uh, a lot of great representation for uh, certain native communities uh, within the MIA, but I'm curious how you want to look at that and re-examine maybe what indigenous art means, not just looking at North America or not just looking at parts of Central and South America, but how you kind of maybe will broaden that view. I think that we have like a very strong collection of uh, U.S., indigenous art that has been built by Jill uh, Alberg Johe, our curator. Uh, I think that in conversation with her, with her, we can like begin to expand this notion uh, of indigenous art to other countries of the Americas. And I would uh, include this uh, also the conversation with the Global Contemporary Art Department mm. because I think that 
it is very important for the museum to bring to the collection expressions of contemporary indigenous art, right? Because, um, I mean, people are very used to think that in the, the indigenous peoples are something that are, you know, stuck in the past. Right. And they are doing like what they have been doing for, for millennia. And uh, I think that we have so many strong uh, indigenous representations in art today uh, with living artists that this should be something that Mia should invest in. I'm I'm curious too, and this is more kind of a broader question to to pose to you as somebody who's been a curator for as long as you have. You know, obviously there's the conversation about repatriation and the idea of repatriation and how there are some there are oftentimes not the infrastructure in place to preserve a piece of art if it were to be repatriated. And so I'm curious what your opinions are on this kind of new age of digital repatriation, if you can at all speak to that, or even just uh, about repatriation in general, what your views are um, on the complex issue that is repatriation. Well, this is a very um, complicated um, terrain, <laughs> right? Because for us in the Western tradition, you take an object, you place it in a museum, and you kind of conserve it for its aesthetic and it's, um, I mean, what it means for a certain culture, right? But for many uh, cultures, these objects are alive, you know, and mm. they, they only exist when people activate their powers. Mm. And in the museum, it is kind of frozen, right? So I think that this is a discussion that museums are trying to, to have now with, uh, with many uh, communities around the world. Uh, some museums, like I know that the AGO, the Art Gallery of Ontario, does that. Um, sometimes they allow indigenous people into the, into the museum to have their rituals, to to use the objects mm. that are part of the holdings of the museum, and then they again become meaningful, you know, to their peoples. And uh, well, other museums. Uh, had uh, took the decision to actually give back to some communities, you know, pieces that were, especially when they were, that yeah. were mm -hmm. stolen, you know, uh, during colonization process and, and all that. So this is a question, uh, it's a very, uh, it's a question that now is very um, important for many museums in the world. And I think that really it has to be like a decision case by case. It's sure. not that there is a general policy right. that can orient what museums, what institutions will do, but I think that this is really something that has to be discussed, you know, case by case. You brought up a really interesting point, which is that different traditions and different cultures have a different way of viewing art and viewing how they interact with that art and, and, those, and those images and, that, and how, how that plays a role in their culture. And so to kind of follow up on that. How does that influence how you have approached your curation and how you may approach your curation moving forward here at the MIA? Well, I can mention uh, an exhibition that was one of the last exhibitions that um, I was responsible for in, um, in Brazil. And it was an exhibition of contemporary indigenous art, for instance. And um, so... This artist was trying to sell mm -hmm. this this pieces that he fabricated, mm -hmm. you know, with his hands, and uh, it was uh, he was attacked by people who 
doesn't admit that an indigenous could take part in that kind of market. Mm. You know, they were trying to, to sell things. So they destroyed the pieces. And we decided to show, like, this works, his works in pieces, you know, mm. uh, re to talk really about this kind of conflict. Or, conflict. Or, or, yeah, yeah. Yeah this kind of conflict that, that can exist. Like an indigenous cannot be an artist, mm. you know, because he mm. uh, he's not part of the Western right. what traditional... What we consider kind of the institutional exactly, what idea we consider of what an to artist be is. Art. And also uh, we had works. So we mixed a little bit uh, like traditional indigenous pieces with contemporary art. And uh, some of these traditional pieces were... Uh, used for dress, <laughs> right. like the pieces that were in on exhibition to activate them. And also there was like a very beautiful work in the collection. I don't know if you heard that uh, some years ago, a very important museum in Brazil caught fire, right? And was destroyed by fire. And that museum hold like an impressive number of um, objects by many uh, different indigenous Brazilian cultures. And uh, so um, one of the artists that I consider to be one of the most impressive indigenous artists today in the world, mm. uh, his name is Denilson Baniwa, and uh, he uh, went there and he caught like the ashes, you know, and put them into like, small containers like that and he made like this installations with a lot of containers of ashes and he would display with uh, labels that say so this was like a feather uh, used by uh, certain indigenous cultures in rituals like this and he would describe something that di didn't exist anymore so I think that this is also a way of questioning how much responsibility western institutions uh, have in uh, calling themselves like the caretakers right. caretaker protector protectors of other indigenous cultures you know like we failed to do that Valeria Piccoli started last month with the Minneapolis Institute of Art. She's the museum's first curator of Latin American art and also Mia's chair of Arts of the Americas. The first exhibition at the museum under her new role is called Revision, Art in the Americas. That exhibition opens in the summer. I'm Jacob Alloy, filling in for Angela Davis. You've been listening to my conversation with arts leaders in Twin Cities. They're all working towards giving a voice to underrepresented communities. We heard from Bayou Bay and Leslie Barlow from Affirmation Space, Public Functionary, and Creatives After Curfew. Alec Fisher, a documentary filmmaker, and Valeria Pico, the curator of Latin American art and chair of Arts of the Americas at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Today's conversation was produced by Danelle Cloutier. Take care, everyone.